I am going to be teaching more regularly. I'm going to try to get up here about once a month. And because of that, I'm going to park myself in a book. One of the difficulties of preaching irregularly is that you, know, you don't want to you know, start working expositionally through a book because then the teaching becomes disjointed. We forgot where we were when we get to a new message. But I'm going to be up here regularly, so I'm going to return to the book of Ephesians. Um, when I first started teaching here on Wednesday nights, I started in Ephesians. We made it through, I think, verse 4 after five or six sermons. So I'm going to start over and maybe move a little bit quicker than that. Um, one of the reasons I want to start in Ephesians is that uh, the pastor in Ephesus, his name was Timothy. Um, the letter to the Ephesians is Paul's letter to the church, to the people that were pastored by Timothy. And so at the same time as James delivers us the instructions given to the elder Timothy, I want to give you the encouragement that Paul gave to Timothy's sheep. So that you get the words to the shepherd and the words to the sheep. So today we're going to begin in just the greeting. We're going to start with Paul's simple greeting to the people in the church at Ephesus. Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see similar introductions, similar greetings in all of Paul's letters. It's identical almost to some of the other ways in which Paul has greeted the people of God. And because of this, we often find in you know, expositional preaching series that these greetings are overlooked. You might find a, a first sermon in an Ephesians series go as far as verse 4 or 5 on the first Sunday, leaving only verses 1 and 2 with an introduction. Sure, this is very simple, and it does not appear to have much theological richness. But there's something here for us. Even though it's not didactic teaching, Paul would tell us in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for correction, for rebuking and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so in these first two verses, we are going to find the teaching, the correction, the training, and the rebuke that Paul would have for us. Paul first introduces himself as an apostle. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He does this throughout his letters. He establishes his authority as an apostle. To understand the significance of what it means to be an apostle, we have to sort of follow a thread of authority through other places in Scripture before we finally get to Paul. So first, we're going to examine the nature of God's revelation to the church, just in general. Um, to do that, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 1. I contend with you that Hebrews was also written by Paul, despite the lack of a similar greeting here. In Hebrews 1, Paul just jumps in in order to establish the authority of Christ. He writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So first, we want to outline a distinction between God's revelation in the Old Testament, that is, the time before the incarnation of Christ, and God's revelation in the New Testament, the revelation of God after Christ's resurrection. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there is an entire section of books called the Prophets. Names like Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Daniel come to mind as these great prophets of Israel. And we see in the Old Testament that God always speaks to his people by speaking only to these special people, these prophets, those appointed to have the authority to bring the words of God to the nation of Israel. And when one prophet dies, the people of God wait because they know to expect another to take his place. They know to expect God to raise up another prophet to bring them the word of God. In Hebrews 1, we're given a contrast. Something has changed. Paul declares that God no longer speaks to individuals as prophets. Instead, he has now spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So God no longer speaks to these individual prophets, at least not in the same way that he spoke to them in the Old Testament, Instead, now he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. But we have to explain what that means because Jesus Christ is not here in the flesh speaking to us. I am. So there's something different about how God speaks to his people now. But we'll get there. The author of Hebrews asserts that God created the world through his son, the Christ, and that this son now speaks. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so when we see Christ speaking, when we see this idea of Christ being the creator of all things, being the one who upholds the world, the universe, by his word. I think of John chapter 1. John the Apostle, in the first chapter of his gospel, says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here in John 1 3, we see that all things are made through Christ, and John presents us not with the name of Christ not by telling us Jesus the Christ, but he presents us with this idea of the word. The word of God. This word of God that created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power. He would go on to tell us in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so from this, we know that this word is Jesus Christ. 
this infant born of the Virgin Mary, this little child is the word of God, the one who created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. The Word, the Son, the Christ. He is the one through whom God now speaks. So God speaks through Christ, and now we need to understand how he does that. I'm going to go off on a little side note here before we get away from Hebrews 1. Um, There's something important to understand about what is being established here in Hebrews 1. I had a friend ask me this week about the idea of the biblical canon. When we talk about the biblical canon, we're referring to the 66 books that comprise this. These 66 books, which are the word of God breathed out. And his question was, does Hebrews 1 teach that this canon is closed? Does Hebrews 1 teach that no one can add more books to the word of God? And the explanation here gets into what I'm going to call the difference between doctrine and applied theology. Okay? Because the exact answer to that question is not actually taught in Hebrews 1. Okay? And that is because Hebrews 1 does not have this idea of a canon. We cannot read Hebrews 1 and think about a list of books because the author of Hebrews 1 was not concerned with naming a list of books. If he was, he would have given us the list. Instead, the author of Hebrews 1 is establishing the authority by which the word of God comes to us. Okay, This is the doctrine that Christ alone now is the authority by which God speaks. God speaks only now through his son and no longer through these prophets that we see in the Old Testament. So even though Hebrews 1 does not directly answer the question about the biblical canon, that falls into the realm of applied theology. And oftentimes in this applied theology, we will find things, questions, problems to solve that don't have direct context in Scripture. Okay, this idea of a biblical canon is not here in Hebrews 1, but we have to use Hebrews 1 in order to answer the question. We must apply Hebrews 1 to this idea of the biblical canon. Sorry, side note. (laughs) We're going to get to Paul very shortly. We've identified that God speaks now through Christ and no longer through prophets. And in Ephesians 1, Paul writes that he is an apostle by the will of God. When Paul declares he is an apostle by the will of God, he is referring directly to his own conversion on the road to Damascus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read a good bit here because I just want to let the scripture speak. (laughs) Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So first we see here Paul also called Saul. Fun fact, his name was not changed. Some people called him Paul, some people called him Saul. Paul was probably his Greek name, and Saul was his Hebrew name after King Saul. But we see Paul breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He's a murderer. He killed God's people. He even had the paperwork to prove it. He had letters from the priests making it perfectly legal for him to arrest and bring to Damascus any Christians he found. Paul hated Christ. And he murdered the sheep. It was his job. And he was good at it, and he loved it. And while he was on his way, a light from heaven shone around him and he fell to the ground and the voice of Christ cried out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And here we see where Jesus identifies Paul as his chosen instrument. Jesus tells Ananias, he is my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the world. So when we see in Hebrews 1 that God now speaks only through Christ, we're not to understand it literally as though only Christ in his body may speak to you, Instead, we see it as a delegation of authority. In the Old Testament, God delegated the authority to the prophets to testify on his behalf. And now that authority has been given only to Christ. And here we see that Christ has given it to Paul. Before we move on, there's something else I want to point out about Paul's conversion. We see that Paul's experience is somewhat unique, right? I mean, going from being a murderer to seeing a blinding light, receiving a vision, hearing the words of Christ himself, and the testimony that he would be a chosen instrument. What I want you to understand about this, beloved, is that God takes the same care in saving his elect as he does in choosing Paul to be his apostle. If 
the same love, the same grace, the same mercy that turned Paul from murderer into apostle is the same grace, love, and mercy with which God has saved you. Both by the decree of God. Both by the careful and particular decree of God. In the same way that God decreed and planned out Paul's work as an apostle, God has planned and decreed the work that he would have you do. So while we can look at Paul and think, how glorious is God for saving a man such as Paul, we can look at our own conversions in the same way. There's one more piece in this puzzle for establishing Paul's authority as an apostle. First, we see that God no longer speaks through individual prophets, but now he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. We see that Christ is the living word, the radiance of the glory of God become flesh. And then we see that Christ proclaims Paul as his instrument for bringing the word to the world. And finally, from this man, Paul, writing with the authority of heaven given to him by Christ, we see in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul not only writes as one appointed by God, his words are from God. Paul's words here in Ephesians, Paul's words to Timothy, these are not the words of Paul. They have the same authority as if they were spoken to us directly from heaven in a whirlwind. Just as God spoke to Peter and James and John on the mountain out of the whirlwind. When he told them, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Peter, James, and John fell to their faces and worshipped him. That is the same authority with which Paul writes to us today. Because Paul is Christ's chosen instrument to bring his word to the Gentiles. And so there's a distinction between the revelation before and after Christ. There's something different. We've explained how the method of delivery has changed. But there's something else we need to explore here. There's something else different about God's revelation to the saints of Israel and God's revelation to the church. In Hebrews 1, Paul draws this sharp contrast between the instrument of God's revelation in the former days and in these last days. And one might observe that in both cases, the words are written by sinful men. But anyone can plainly see that the difference is Christ, right? The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is how we may see Christ. In the Old Testament, we do not see the fullness of the gospel of grace revealed. We see the gospel of grace revealed through shadows, through promises. The saints of the Old Testament had faith in the promise of the coming Christ. But now we have faith in the risen Christ. We have seen the radiance of his glory. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So we see that the difference between the Old and the New Testaments is the full revelation of these prophecies and shadows fulfilled completely in Christ. In Matthew 27, as Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks were split. There are no more shadows. The full radiance of the glory of God is revealed perfectly in Jesus Christ as he has given it to us in his word. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, David, they killed animals in the temple, waiting for the Messiah. They had faith in a promise that the Messiah would come. And they died waiting. But we do not wait. We can see. Our eyes have been opened and he has been revealed to us. Through the word we see the radiance of his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So Paul says he is an apostle by the will of God. Now you've probably heard that phrase used very much for just about anything, right? I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. We even see it in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This idea of God's will being done gets talked about a lot in our culture, even among us. I think most people who say these things are not aware of the significance of what they are saying. Have you ever asked someone what they mean when they say, Lord willing, when you know that they do not believe in the sovereignty of the Lord? Many people pray like God is fighting a battle and he's losing. God's will is not something that might happen. People pray like there's a chance that God's not going to have his way. How little is their God? 
God declares in Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is how we look at Paul's conversion. Paul was not in the right place at the right time. Some guy named Bob happened to be on the road to Damascus that day instead of Paul. You would not have the Apostle Bob. The Lord is, as he does with all things, he has taken particular care in who he has chosen. When Paul says, by the will of God, he is removing himself from the equation. He is declaring that he has had nothing to do with it. He is acknowledging that he didn't want to be an apostle. Right? Do you think Paul wanted to be an apostle before he was an apostle? No, he wanted to find the apostles and cut their heads off. Paul was on his way to murder God's people. But God, by his decree, saved him. God, in his mercy, chose Paul, despite who Paul was. And in the same way, God has chosen his sheep. God has chosen you, beloved, despite who we are. Paul writes about us and himself. In Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of serpents is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Where Paul says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, Paul is identified in Acts 9 as breathing threats and murder. Where Paul says their feet are swift to shed blood, Paul, Paul is identified in Acts 9 as capturing Christians and taking them to be executed. Paul's evil, he's full of hate, he's a murderer, and he hates God and all of his people, and God called him. God chose him, and God took him and made him a great instrument for the proclamation of the gospel. And yet people still take these apostles, sort of, hold them in high esteem, which in some senses may be okay, as long as you understand who they were. There's no difference between me and Paul, except that Paul was given a different job. Paul was wicked, and God saved him, and God gave Paul a work to do, and in that, he gave Paul the authority to write letters to the churches, and those letters are the word of God. I was not given the same authority, 
I was given the work of proclaiming that gospel. I was given the job of reading those letters to you. I was given the responsibility of echoing the words of God given to us by Paul. It's not that, you know, I could never be like Paul. It's not that we could never be as good as Paul. But when we understand who Paul was and where he came from, it's more that we could only ever be like Paul. Apart from the work of God in saving us, we could only ever be hate-filled murderers like Paul. Apart from God's sovereignty in election, in saving his sheep, we could only be like Paul. So it's not that we could never be like Paul. It's that you and I and Paul could never be like Christ the righteous. Because only Christ, the righteous, can satisfy God's wrath. Only the righteousness of Christ pleases God. Because if God looks on us apart from Christ, he sees wickedness. God's anger burns against all who are not in Christ. Because he is just and righteous. Paul had nothing to offer. We had nothing to offer but sin and misery and murder, and yet God still saves us. And as it was with Paul, the apostle by the will of God, so it is with all his sheep, elect of God, by the will of God. And this salvation was secured by Christ, the righteous, on the cross of Calvary, where he drank the full cup of the wrath of God, taking upon himself the fullness of God's righteous anger against the sins of his sheep. People from every nation and tribe and tongue redeemed by the blood of Christ. Poured out onto the earth. By that blood we are declared not guilty. We bring to the courtroom of heaven our sin and our guilt. And by that blood of Christ, the justice of Almighty God is satisfied. And on that cross, Christ breathes his last and he declares it is finished. He surrendered up his spirit. And he was buried in the tomb of a rich man and for three days, his so-called disciples contemplated returning to their fishing nets as if they had never walked with God. And then on the third day, he rose again in his human body, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is awaiting a day that is fast approaching when he will return. He will return on the clouds to judge the nations with a rod of iron. This is what we see in Revelation 19, 
John tells us that he will judge the nations with a rod of iron and he will trample the wicked in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And we, the church, whose salvation has been secured by him on the cross, we will be resurrected and glorified by the same spirit that resurrected and glorified Christ. And we will rejoice as one body, the bride of Christ, finally united with our bridegroom, Christ the righteous, and enjoy eternal intimacy with him. This salvation is all of Christ. Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus, grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the first and the final cause of our salvation. And his grace is given to us for faith. Paul would declare in Ephesians 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We have nothing to boast in but Christ. Paul has nothing to boast in but Christ. He didn't choose us because we chose him first. He didn't save us because he knew that we were going to be good enough to save. God didn't check the future to make sure he was making the right decision. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> God is time. God is the creator of all things. God has decreed all things that will come to pass. And he has taken particular care to save his people. Those he has called his own by the pleasure of his goodwill. Finally, Paul entreats us with peace. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a peace that is immaterial and eternal. This peace cannot be found in any material possession or anything of this world. There is no peace in securing your finances. There's no peace in no longer having to live in an apartment and having a house. (laughs) 
there is no peace in having a good marriage. There's no peace in doing all the right things. There's no peace in your job. There's no peace in your church. There's no peace in any of these things except that we give them up for the sake of Christ. Right, we all know people who have all of these things right. They've got huge bank accounts with lots of zeros. They've got easy jobs, jobs they love. Love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Thriving churches. But they don't have peace. Because they don't have Christ. Right, there's a popular Christian song. It says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Blessed be your name. We need to understand, if we're going to sing this song, I don't think we sing it. We've ever done it here. It's not a bad song. You give and take away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The song is sung every day by people who don't have Christ because their faith is in material things that God has given them. And if God actually took things away, they would curse God. Where does this idea come from? We talked about it Wednesday night. In Job chapter 1, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you are in Christ and you have the peace of Christ, that is faith in his work, assurance in his promise, then when the Lord takes away everything that he has given you, that peace remains. Because the Lord can't take away Christ. If you have been given Christ, God cannot take that from you. Not that he won't, which he won't. He's promised not to. He cannot. Because he has declared that his justice is satisfied in Christ. His wrath is no more for those who are in Christ. And in that we have this eternal peace, this eternal comfort, despite what is going on in your life. Do not trust in the material, the temporary comforts that the Lord has given you. Thank him for them. Bless the Lord for all that he has given us. But we do not hope in those things. We hope only in Christ. We hope only in the promises given us in his word. Trust only in him, for he alone is good. The only peace is found in Christ. He is your hope. Let's pray.
Lord, every day, give us this peace. Lord, every day, remind us of the confidence with which we can approach you. Confidence in the work of Christ. Confidence in the truth of your promise. And every day, remind us of your love, your grace, your mercy. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your promises, that we have seen them clearly, that every day we may read your word and see and understand your promises and see your glory put on display through the work of your Son. Lord, be with us as we partake of your meal. This thing that we do at the command of your Son. Lord, through it, give us grace for the strengthening of our faith. That as we taste, we see and understand your judgment that we deserved. That we will never experience. And through this we may see your glory the glory of Christ slain and the glory of Christ raised. We pray these things in his name. Amen.